Alrighty, we have uh, done an introduction to the Psalms uh, this morning, thus far, and we uh, are now, and then an introduction to the Psalms of Lament, giving you at least a bit of a, a flavor of what the Lament literature is like in the uh, Old Testament. And now we're going to take a look at two Psalms in particular. We'll look at Psalm 22 and then Psalm 69. And uh, our, my intent here is to go through the psalm, help you to sense something of the structure and the movement of the psalm. We'll basically go through them. And then when we're done, uh, I want us to spend some time reflecting, okay, what do we learn from these psalms for dealing with losses in life? Uh, what do we learn as we uh, go on our own journey trying to make sense of some of the more difficult circumstances that all of us have encountered. We begin then with Psalm 22, and whenever I read this psalm, I'm often uh, reminded of uh, one of Samuel Beckett's well-known plays called Waiting for Godot. How many of you have ever read Waiting for Godot or seen it on stage? Um, sometimes described as uh, one of those pieces that reflect the theater of the absurd, uh, written in the 1950s. Um, the setting is rather simple, and the plot is as well. Two men, uh, Vladimir and Estrogen, are in the middle of a barren area, nothing there but one dead tree, and they're waiting for Godot. Uh, they're, they're waiting as a rather impatient exercise in trying to make sense of why they're awaiting. They're trying to figure out who this Godot is that they're waiting for. Many times they want to leave and give up because nothing's happening, but somehow they're enticed to stay, and they keep going on back and forth in this very absurd kind of, of rhetoric and language. Uh, it's, it's really marked by very dehumanizing interaction, and in the end, nothing happens. Vladimir, Estrogen, wait, Gnode never comes, the play ends. Now, many critics have, argued, have uh, said that Beckett is probably trying to make a religious statement, a theological statement, if you will, uh, Godot, spelled G-O-D-O-T, seems to be a symbol for God. And he seems to be portraying God as some vague notion on whom people wait and depend and cry out, but God is silent and never shows. I suspect that the psalmist, and this is David in chapter 22, feels like Vladimir and Estrogen waiting for Godot. It's a fascinating, fascinating psalm. Uh, it is uh, quoted nine times in the Passion narratives of the Gospels, quoted nine different times. The struggle of the psalmist is in many ways a kind of prototype of the struggles of the one who would come as Messiah. What I find very interesting about the psalm is the movement of it, and we'll see this as we go through it. It begins in despair, it moves to a glimmer of hope, it falls back to despair, moves to a glimmer of hope, falls once again back to despair, and then to hope. That's the movement. Three different series, in a sense, of, of despair, hope, despair, hope, despair, hope. Uh, you, you talk about a, a very human uh, sort of psalm. This is very much it. I think people identify with this, and of course what is most interesting is this is the psalm that Jesus quotes as he is on the cross. 
and we will see that in a few moments. All right, let's begin then. It starts in despair, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Now, uh, he is experiencing here what some have called the silence of God. Uh, All of us at times have probably known what we perceive to be the silence of God. He clearly is praying, he's groaning, he's crying out. And in many ways, it probably feels to the psalmist as if God has taken a vacation, fallen asleep. The whole thing is is a hoax, it's not real. And and, uh, therefore, as he is dealing with whatever it is, and we don't know exactly the circumstances behind this psalm, but whatever David is experiencing, he is experiencing despair and feels that God is absent. God simply won't speak. And of course, it's this very kind of despair which, interestingly, Jesus experienced on the cross. For on the cross, when he felt the weight of the world sin upon him, in Matthew 27, 46, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I think most of us would have expected that Jesus would have quoted from the next psalm. In fact, if you and I had written the script, I'm sure we wouldn't have Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Savior of the world, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We probably would have had the Savior saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death, and I will not fear. That's that's probably the way we wanted to write the script, right? had you and I done it. But as Jesus is hanging on the cross in fully God, fully human, he identifies with us to the point where he cries out in agony, the very same agony that is expressed here by David in despair. Um, I think that one of the the, uh, things, of course, when we look in the life of Jesus, we see is this very, very interesting blend of the divine with human. And uh, the, the church, as they developed the creeds, got it right, fully God, fully man. He wasn't half God, half man. Uh, he wasn't God that appeared to be a man. That was uh, one of the heresies that uh, leapt around from time to time called docetism, that Jesus only appeared to be human. But what is clearly evident, I think, in the passion narratives particularly, and other places as well, is that this Jesus, who was fully God, eternal, one with the Father and the Spirit, and all the other descriptions we can give of Trinitarian theology, this one was also fully human. And therefore, in his identification with us, he experiences the same anguish, the same burdens, the same sense of loss, if you will, that we all experience. You you recall when Jesus is in the garden, he prays, Lord, if possible, lift this from me. In other words, the human side of Jesus did not want to go through with it. And yet he says, not my will, but thine be done. And it's in that being able to take on the human element, that which was truly human, 
that he so identifies with our hurt and our anguish. That's one of the great things of hope that we have, I think, when we go through our times of loss, is that we know that our Savior has gone through, been tempted in every way as we are, and experienced all the pangs of humanness that you and I have experienced. Well, he doesn't stay in despair. He moves on to a glimmer of hope in verses 3 through 5. He says, yet, and here you you often have this uh, word, it's a kind of contrast, the Hebrew, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted in you and and you delivered them. And they cried to you and were saved In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Suddenly, out of the midst of despair, he is gaining a glimmer of hope. And how's he doing that? What's he doing that's giving him some sense of hope? He's focusing on God. And what particularly about God? And God's faithfulness with whom? The past, and particularly with his people. He says, you are the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. Our fathers put their trust in you. He is probably thinking about Abraham and Isaac. He's probably thinking about the Exodus. At this point, he's probably remembering back to the centuries before and the way in which God took people and moved with them in some very, very difficult journeys. Remembrance is a very interesting thing. Remembrance haunts us, and remembrance provides hope for us. Uh, It haunts us when we have memories of things that have been hurtful, painful things from the past that we want to forget. We know, however, shoving them under the rug is not an adequate way to deal with them. But we also know that remembrance has a very powerful way of kind of jarring us back to reality and granting us hope. Now, the interesting thing is that the positive memories with reference to God, we often forget. And uh, we, we, we tend to for, forget the answered prayer. We, we tend to forget the, the way we felt the incredible sense of God's presence in a, in a tough spot. Uh, we, we tend to forget what it was really like when we encountered Christ and experienced his forgiveness and, and felt the, the uh, spirit of God come upon us. Uh, we forget what it was like when we read the Word and, and uh, felt the aliveness of God in the pages of Holy Scripture. And, and yet we know that it is often in remembrance that we are brought back to reality. And, and that's what happens to David at this point. He at least can gain some glimmer of hope because he knows that his, their fathers, his fathers put their trust in God and he delivered them. He takes hope in the great exodus. He takes hope in all that God has done before. Well, it doesn't last very long. (laughs) You get to uh, verses 6 through 8, and he drops back to despair. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Again, these are words that are quoted in the gospel accounts in the context of Christ's crucifixion. Well, 
you know, David is, is now personalizing the whole thing. Uh, whatever it is that he has is experienced, he, he begins to uh, develop that very unhealthy theology of being a worm, a worm theology. Uh, what is the name of that hymn that talks about for such a worm as I? Um, he cannot even recall that he has been made in the image of God with dignity and great value, such value that one day the Savior of the world would come and die for his sins. Uh, he, he is so overwhelmed with the present circumstances and with the feelings of anguish and whatever it is that is haunting him that all he can say is, I am no longer even a man, I'm a worm. I'm scorned, I'm despised by people. Everyone who looks at me mocks me, shaking their heads. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. And at this point, I think David really does feel like Vladimir and Estrogen as they're out there in the middle of that wilderness with that dead tree waiting for Gadel. Where is God? He's put, their, he's put his trust in God. He has known God. He's written psalms of praise and adoration. But now, in the midst of his despondency, he really hits an emotional low. I am a worm and not a man. And in many ways, of course, it's, uh, it's the sort of thing where he's saying, God, it's not fair. Uh, why must I go through this? And, and we all wrestle with that in time of loss, in time of great desperation. He, however, moves back to hope, verses 9 through 11. And this is the second time we're seeing hope now in the chapter. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I, cast, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. And therefore he is now uttered to able, able to utter, rather, a prayer of petition, do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Uh, this time, as he, as he thinks about uh, a source of hope, he looks back to his own life. He looked back to the collective life of Israel, and now he looks back to his own personal life, and he recalls God's care for him. He recalls his own birth, that it was actually this God who formed that self that he called a worm and worthless. He looks through his life, and he does have enough sense to recall that God had cared for him and God had been there. And he finds some hope in realizing that God was there, even though at the moment he is feeling the absence of God. And therefore, on the basis of that, he can come to a prayer that probably doesn't have a lot of faith, but after all, how much faith does one truly have to have to cry out to God? Do not be far from me. Trouble is near, and there is no one else to help. I mean, that's about as much as he can get out in, in the midst of his desperation. And, uh, and so he at least can turn to God with a prayer of petition for God's help. Well, we might think by now uh, the psalmist would have gained victory over whatever it is that's haunting him and causing the great desperation, but once again he falls back into despair. And we see the despair here in verses 12 through 15. Actually, it goes uh, 12 to 18. 
Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. What metaphors here are so powerful, aren't they? I mean, you, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. Potsherd was broken pottery pieces that you find. People go in archaeological digs today, find these potsherds, and they're, they're just dried up old pieces of clay. And, and he, he says, my strength is like that, just dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. It's very interesting, isn't it? The metaphors that are used, dried up, uh, tongue sticking to the mouth, the dust of death. The, the imagery of just of, of feeling like there is no strength there, there is no vitality whatsoever. And what do you think he's referring to there in verses 12 and 13 when he talks about the bulls surrounding him, strong bulls of Bashan, roaring lions? What do you think he's after here? Okay, could be. Yeah, probably other people. This is a way of describing people who've got it in for him. I mean, in the next psalm, we'll particularly see this because he'll actually talk about his enemies uh, and, and use that language. But, but here, the bulls surrounding him, strong bulls of Bashan, it's, it's a way of actually saying, these ungodly people have it in for me. And he probably includes some people in, in the circle of ungodly who aren't necessarily ungodly, but he, he has a lot of conflicts with, because we'll talk about it in the next psalm, that there was an awful lot of dysfunctionality in his network of friends and family. Uh, but, you know, th these folks are like roaring lions tearing their prey, and, and, and he feels the anguish of broken relationships here. And so that's why he feels like he's poured out like water and all the bones are out of joint and he feels all dried up inside. You, you read that and you get some sense of, of what he felt deep within. And then he goes on, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. And you again notice the metaphors that are, of course, um, picked up in the Passion narratives and uh, uh, prophetic elements that are here in the text pointing to that ultimate event. David is a prototype, in a sense, of the Christ who would one day come. I can count on my bones, people, and stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, which, of course, is exactly what happened to our Lord. And, and so, you know, when, we, when you think about this psalm, what I think is, again, remarkable is the way in which this is an illustration, a prophecy, if you will, a prototype, or whatever language you want to describe this, of what the Lord himself would experience. Which means what? means that whatever we go through in life, Jesus has gone there before. No matter what sense of loss you may encounter, no matter what sense of anguish you have, no matter what sense of despair you feel, Jesus has been there and done that. He's gone through it. He knows it. 
And I suspect that because he was both fully God and fully man, Jesus probably experienced the anguish more deeply than we did. Now, if you ever think about that. You see, our only frame of reference is, to, is human. So we experience despair within the human framework. That's what we know. That's all we know. But Jesus, keep in mind, he left the glories of heaven. As Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself, meaning not that he gave up his deity, but he emptied himself of all the prerogatives, privileges he had being with God the Father, came down as this lowly servant into the world and entered our world. And therefore, because he knew all the glories of heaven, and the pangs of earth, the pangs of earth and of wrong and injustice and loss and everything else must have been much more pronounced than you and I could ever experience it. Because the frame of reference by which he could judge what he went through was so much more jarring than what you and I know. Well, the psalm doesn't end here, thankfully. It begins to move on again toward a sense of hope. And this is the last phase, the last stage of the psalm from here, from verse 19 through verse 31. And it's rather interesting, the hope kind of builds. And I'm just going to read through it here. I think what you'll begin to see is there's a little bit of hope and, and then he kind of reflects a little bit more on it and the hope begins to build until the point where he can actually end with a great note of triumph in the end. So let's take a look here, what what happens. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. This is still the cry of a desperate person, isn't it? Okay, he he hasn't triumphed yet, uh, but he's got enough uh, sense of hope that he can turn to, to God. Whoops. And then he says, deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog's Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. He's got these great metaphors to describe those who have it in for him. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. In other words, he's saying, Lord, if you can come and do this as you've done it in the past, I think that I will again be able to praise you, even though at the moment I can't. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. And now he begins to move on and says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but he has listened to his cry for help. You see the hope as it begins to build. For now comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, 
And then I love this last phrase, for he has done it. You have this very interesting kind of uh, prophetic, already fulfilled notion. <laughs> He's already done it. And it's a remarkable movement, isn't it? When, when you think of the despair to the hope, and I, and I think that one of the things that you, you really see here is that David is able to step back from his own circumstance, his own sense of loss, and begin to see the work of God that is moving towards something ultimate. In his case, he's longing for the coming of the Messiah. And of course, for those of us on the other side of the first coming, we're looking on to the ultimate final triumph when all things will be made right and restored through the return of Christ. And we don't have to get into all the eschatological differences to at least affirm that much, that God makes all things right. And somehow he knows that even though at the moment he's not experiencing triumph, he knows that there is an ultimate triumph coming. He knows that, as I like to put it, and this kind of sums up my eschatology, he knows that God wins the ballgame in history. That God wins the ballgame in history. He himself is not winning. He's not winning. When he looks at his life, I mean, he looks at the enemies, he looks at everything that's happening, he's not winning. He's not winning emotionally. He's not winning relationally, but he knows he is committed to this God, and this God wins the ballgame, and he wants to be on that side in the final land. Powerful, beautiful psalm. A lot more we could say about it, but uh, I think you get the gist of what is happening here and the sense of triumph that he begins to feel. Now, Let's turn to another psalm, and uh, this one is Psalm 69, a psalm with a, a, a somewhat similar flavor, but the movement is somewhat different. And by the way, there are any number of these psalms that you can go through, and you will often see very similar kinds of struggles. It'll often, it'll usually start with some kind of a negative experience. It'll start with lament. Sometimes you will have the triumph in the middle, and then it'll go back to lament. Sometimes you have the triumph or the sense of hope at the end. Very, very interesting patterns. And you can actually look at the patterns uh, grammatically to some degree in the way the poetry flows. But as we've looked at the Psalm 22 here, I've basically simply followed the emotionality of the, of the psalm. That's the way I've structured it. Well, let's look here at Psalm 69. Um, a, a psalm that I think, um, a, again, is, is the sort of psalm that most of us have felt at some point. It begins with emotional distress. And uh, the first half of the psalm is really about distress. We're going to see there's a second kind of distress with varying sources. But it begins with a, a kind of statement of emotional distress. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Now, I suspect that the average person read that, they would say, this is not a person of faith. This is not a believer. 
But I remind you, <laughs> this is David. Whoops, I, didn't, I forgot to put the text here in front of you. I read it without. Here we are. I remind you that this is David described as a man after God's own heart. And he is expressing this incredible emotional distress as a person who is not only king, but who is one that has been specially set apart by God. And expressing the fact that at this point his eyes fail looking for God. He can't even see God anywhere at the moment. The waters have come up about his neck, the, the miry depths. It's as though he's in quicksand. I don't know if you've ever seen quicksand. I lived the first uh, 10 years of my life in the south in southern Alabama. We had a lot of quicksand. People had a lot of dirt roads, and people get stuck in the mire, and then there were these places where you would actually have quicksand. And I remember one place, a creek, where we'd go swimming, and everybody was always, you've got to be careful of the quicksand in this place, because if you get into it, you're going to sink. And uh, I don't understand the, the geology of it all, but evidently there are waters running underneath the ground. And as a result of that, the soil sinks. It's so moist, and it's a certain kind of mire. And you, you get into these things, you just begin to go down. And um, somewhere along the line, I think David has seen some quicksand, and that's the way he's describing what he feels emotionally. Uh, waters are coming up to his neck on the one hand. He's sinking in the depths on the other hand. The floods are engulfing him. Incredible expression of emotional distress. And then he goes on in the next verses, verses 4 and 5, and actually the next number of verses, are going to be what I describe as relational distress. And the first source of that relational distress are his enemies. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God, my guilt is not hidden from you. Uh, the last phrases there, I think, are very, very interesting. He's saying, look, Lord, you know who I am. Uh, my guilt isn't hidden from you. But why in the world do these folks have to turn against me in this way? And, and David had an awful lot of enemies, um, people who had turned against him. And he, you know, his own son Absalom, for example, was one. We often think of Saul as one of his, his enemies. He had to flee for his life. But you have Absalom, his own son, who tried to take over the throne. And probably a number of other people throughout his life who did not like David, probably because of his position of being king, probably because of some things he did to them. Uh, and, and so he knows what it is to have other people turn against him. And he is, is uh, therefore crying out to God, uh, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. My guess is that that's an exaggeration. Uh, my guess is that David doesn't have quite that many enemies. Uh, but when you are down and when you are low, that's what it feels like, doesn't it? And, and so that, that's what he experiences. And then in the next few verses, it goes on to uh, another kind of relational stress. And this is a relational stress because of his faith. Verse 6. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord God Almighty. 
May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. And then verse 7, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. In other words, the scorn he is experiencing in life is actually because he's following God. And he gets more explicit here as he goes on. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Verse 10, when I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. And when I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Very, very interesting words indeed. And what is he feeling here again? He's feeling a loss of friends, uh, a loss of uh, people being in relationship to him because of his faith. Now, I suspect that all of us have had times when we have felt relational distress as a result of our faith. Uh, people who have turned their back on us, people who have become alienated from us, not because of our own doing, but because of our faith commitment, because of the values we uphold, because of what we're committed to in life. And people simply don't want to be in the presence of those kinds of values and those kinds of commitments. Uh, righteousness has a way of making unrighteousness feel uncomfortable. Justice has a way of making injustice feel very uncomfortable. And, and so there is that kind of turning against that has often happened uh, as a result of one's faith, and that is what David is feeling. He's saying, look, Lord, I've been faithful to you. Uh, I know I failed. I know my folly. You know that. You know my guilt. He, he's, he's referred to that. But, he, but he's saying, Lord, uh, I've at least tried. I, I've, I've had a commitment to you. I've believed in you. After all, I've wrote psalms to you. And songs of praise and adoration. And uh, somehow he then asked God, why must people turn against me in this way? And then you have one verse even, it goes back to verse 8 actually, where he experiences relational distress in his own family. And I think this is interesting. He says, I am a stranger to my brothers and alien to my father's son. Now, the home, family, is often described as kind of a, a haven in a heartless world. The one place you want to go to when everything else is messed up in life is home. Uh, you hope it's the one place you can go where there's some degree of fortress from uh, the forces of the world around you. You hope it's the one place you can go for consolation where people will always accept you no matter who you are or what you are or what you've done. And you go home for solace and for consolation. But what does he say? I'm stranger to my brothers, alien to my own mother's sons. And by the way, uh, this is an example of synonymous parallelism with the second line simply saying what the first line said, right? I'm a stranger to my brothers, alien to my, uh, my own brother's sons. And What's interesting here is when you think about David's life, of course, um, he had a very dysfunctional family, and in part of his own making. Uh, you know, we've heard in the news the last few days all of the uh, hullabaloo about Anna Nicole Smith and, uh, um, you know, who her, has the rights to, uh, to bury her and uh, to bury the body and who will have the rights to the child. 
And if you've listened to a few minutes of all of these episodes, you just simply shake your head and say, what dysfunctionality? Uh, uh, the relationships that just were here and then gone and in bed with one and out of bed with another. I mean, it was just, it's incredible. Well, and when, I, when I read David's life, if you go back into the, the story of David's life, uh, in many ways, the saga sounds rather tame compared to uh, the saga of Anna Nicole Smith that we're seeing played out uh, in, in nightly news. Uh, there was in that family attempts to kill other people off by family members. There was rape. There was incest. And there was uh, an attempt to take over the throne by a son. And you can go down the line. It was a dysfunctional family. And so many ways uh, we could say, David, you have this to blame for yourself. And I simply point that out because some of the distress in life isn't just because of the fallenness of the world. Some of it is of our own doing. And I think at this point, David's distress in regards to his own family was probably of his own making to some degree. But in the midst of it, he feels the pain, no matter what. He still feels the pain, whether it's a result of our own uh, lack of faithfulness, whether it's our own attentiveness to God in our parenting process, our own inability to listen to our spouses or our children or our parents, uh, whatever the dysfunctionalities are, nonetheless, it is very, very painful because the one place we want to go is home because that's where we hope we'll find solace. And what David is saying, I can't even find it at home. I'm a stranger to my brothers, alien even to those, he could say, who are his children. Well, life seems very precarious. God seems very part of, uh, far away in this part of the psalm. The next part of the psalm then begins to turn towards God. There is a slow turning, if you will. And again, there is somewhat of a building here, somewhat of a culmination. And let's take a look at, at some of these verses uh, as he begins to turn towards God. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, Answer me with your sure salvation. He at least has his theology right. He's got his thinking right. And even though he can't quite feel it, he begins to uh, at least pray what he knows cognitively. He says, rescue me from that mire, from that sinking sand. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. He's now really referring back to the imagery. You notice the repeat of the metaphors here from the earlier verses. He's referring back to the very same things that have caused him distress and is now beginning to ask God to somehow enter in and do something about it. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depth swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. You still get the sense that David's hurting, don't you? Okay, he's not feeling euphoric here. Answer me, O Lord. Out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. Now, what is interesting here, I think, is that 
David is not turning to God because all of a sudden everything's rosy. He's turning to God in his pain. He, he is at least bolstering within himself enough sense that though he feels alienation and hurt and the emotional distress and all the other things that he's encountered, he at least knows he can turn to God. He is not turning to the Lord because he feels spiritual or because he feels God is near. When you look at the imagery here, I don't think he feels God is there yet. He still feels a sense of alienation. He's still feeling like God is absent, that God has let him down, that life has, uh, it's, it's like he's been cheated, but he still turns to God. Why? How can he do it? Well, I think in many ways it's because David's faith is not built on feelings. It's built on reality. He knows that over the long haul, even though people experience and encounter exiles, as would someday come for Jeremiah, even though they experience the, the kind of things that the children of Israel had experienced in, in the Exodus when they left and they wandered in the wilderness and they complained against God and there was this movement back and forth between faithfulness and unfaithfulness and all the rest, he, he somehow knows that that reality is true. He looks beyond himself for his faith. He doesn't look within himself. One of the problems we have, I think, in the church today and in Christianity is people look within themselves for the source of faith. The source of faith is not within you. That's good Eastern mysticism. And part of the problem is we have in many ways imbibed at the waters of Eastern kind of thought that says if you look within yourself, you will find those resources that you need. The only thing that is inside of you comes from outside of you, <laughs> namely the presence of the Spirit of God. When you build your faith on feelings, God will be there when you feel it, and He will be absent when you don't feel it. And you will project the realities of God on the basis of what you feel. It's a very, very flimsy way to build faith. I remember a few years ago when I was still at Messiah College, I had a student come to see me one day, and he, uh, he, he said, I, I think I'm going to give up my faith. And so I began to ask him what was going on, what was happening in his life, why was he so upset and distraught. And, and he said, well, he said, I, I just don't feel God anymore. And as we talked further, what I began to realize was that his life was going like this, up and down, up and down. And as he would describe, I said, describe the last month to me. And he described it. And a couple days, Gog would be, you know, he would feel on the mountaintop and Gog was there and then he would be down like this. And I said, you know what you've described to me is not the reality of God. What you've described to me is your emotional state. Is God your emotional state? Is that all God is? And I think he began to see and he began to meet with a spiritual director and began to really mature and develop because he began to realize that, no, the faith, the object of faith, the source of faith was external to himself. And what's beautiful about this psalm with David is that it's very experiential in terms of the anguish and the loss that he feels in life, but ultimately he knows that that is not the ground of his faith. He knows that it's the God of Israel, the God who has been there, the God who has cared for people even when they didn't feel like God was very caring. 
And over the long haul of life, he knew that he could turn to that God, even in the midst of his anguish and prayer. Now, we're not going to take the time to do this, but if you go on in the next verses, you'll find that he slips back a little bit. In the verses of 18 to 27, 28, somewhere in there, he's kind of wrestling with God. So it's kind of an interesting movement in this psalm. It it, it starts with this great sense of anguish, uh, distress emotionally, relationally. And then what you have is moving to turning towards God, acknowledging that God is there and the source of his help. But then he begins to wrestle with it. Very, very human. We all do that, don't we? He begins to wrestle with it. Is this true? Is this real? God, are you big enough to enter, enter into my life and, and to console me and walk with me through all that I've gone through? And, and, and he wrestles it out, but then you come to the very, very end. And let's look at the confidence that finally comes at the end. He says, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will seek and be glad. Ye who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let the heavens and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. And what you have here is in the midst of his own loss, He's beginning to move outside of what he feels and outside of his circumstances to even, and I think this is really incredible, not only think about God, but think of the needs of others. The poor, those who have experienced injustice. Uh, He's able to see that it's not the rituals he goes through. He is saying that God will be honored more through the praises of his lips than through his acts of sacrifice. Verse 31. And then at the end, After looking and experiencing all of this, he can find the wherewithal to say, let heaven and earth praise him and even the seas and all that move in them. Why? Because God is the center of it all. Well, a psalm of lament that again ends in triumph, but not a simplistic triumph. And that's the thing I want to get across in these these, uh, psalms of lament. This is not simplistic stuff. Turn to Jesus and all your problems will be solved kind of thing. Uh, Turn to Jesus and you've got some problems you never had before. Um, But but what you see here is a, a, a real sense of the way life is and the way in which we appropriate and in a sense wrestle with God just as Jacob wrestled with God through the angel. 